take your Bibles and turn with me one last time today to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, today picking up in verse 6. And we will read to the end of the chapter, uh, although I will let you know that I am not planning on touching on the last three verses uh, of this book. Paul ends with a benediction and also ends with a mention that uh, he himself uh, is adding a line at the end. This is an important point. Uh, In the ancient world, often you would use an amanuasis that's somewhere between a secretary and a ghostwriter. Uh, but an amanuasis would, would take dictation from Paul and frame uh, some of what he was saying. And at the end of his letters, apparently, often, Paul would write with his own hand uh, a greeting. That's important, as even in this letter, he has warned them about other letters circulating that appear to be from him. Uh, and so that's uh, an important point to note. But we're not going to say any more about it today. Uh, if you are just visiting with us, you're catching us on the end of a study through these two letters to the Thessalonian church. Today, Second uh, Thessalonians, uh, verses 6 through 15. But again, I will be reading the entire chapter. That uh, brings us to an important question. And the question is, what are we doing next week uh, if we're done here? Uh, we're going to take, Lord willing, a couple weeks to, to catch our breath, reorient, before we begin a study through the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, we're going to be looking at Numbers, which uh, if you do your daily, your, your yearly Bible reading, Numbers is one of those ones that you feel like you get to and you go, it's going to take me forever uh, to get through here. Uh, but there is so much good stuff in Numbers, and I've been getting more and more excited as I've been reading through it and getting prepared uh, for a study of that book. Today we sang of the defeat of mighty Sihon, Og of Bashan. That's in Numbers. Uh, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that's in Numbers. Balaam and his, uh, his donkey, that's in Numbers. There's so much good stuff in Numbers and gold that we can mine there. And we're going to be looking at Numbers together in just uh, a few weeks. But that's, that's where we're going today, finishing out 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and then we'll have a few uh, one-offs and, and then getting into that larger study later. Let's uh, go to the Lord together in prayer before we read uh, this word in 2 Thessalonians. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that whether in the Old Testament or in the New, uh, whether in familiar passages or obscure, uh, whether in gospel-saturated passages or very practical ones like the one that we find here, the central message of your word is the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what you have done for your people and what you call us to do because of what you have done for us. Help us to see more of Jesus Christ today, even as we think about work and idleness and church discipline. Help us, Lord, to know more of you and to be better equipped by your Holy Spirit to be your people in the world and in the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. 
For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. At all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. One of my favorite sermon illustrations from one of my favorite preachers uh, is the story that Dale Ralph Davis tells of the young English housemaid, a young woman who was converted sometime during uh, the age of the Puritans, uh, and with apologies for those of you who have heard it, uh, this young woman, uh, a domestic worker, experiences a spiritual awakening, and as you do, she goes to her minister to tell him that she has trusted in Jesus Christ and become a Christian. Uh, You may have heard some slander uh, about the Puritans, but uh, despite what you have heard, they were very interested in experiential Christianity, and so the, the minister naturally asks this young woman, well, what evidence have you seen in your life to prove that this conversion is real? The young woman thinks for a while, then finally responds to her minister telling him that, well, now, now when she does her housework, she also sweeps the dirt that is under the rug. It might seem underwhelming. If you're expecting your faith to show up in very spectacular ways, if you're looking for some sort of extravagant, outward sign that faith is take hold, maybe sweeping under the rug as well, doesn't strike you as as very important. But this young woman, in her simple way, understood what many Christians don't. She understood that the gospel makes a difference in every area of our lives. She understood that in order to be a Christian, it doesn't just mean praying more. It doesn't mean giving more. It doesn't mean necessarily becoming a missionary to some far-flung place. Very often, it means serving the Lord where he calls you and where he has placed you. Very often, it means doing your work with excellence. And if that is true, because that's true, the question is bound to come up eventually. What are we to do with Christians who won't work? That's the issue. At the heart of this passage, not those who can't, but those who won't. Not the unable, but the unwilling. Paul says in verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. They're not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. Now today, we're wrestling with what it means to work 
as a Christian. We're also wrestling and thinking through what does it mean for our faith, what does it mean for our church, if the gospel does not shape our lives in this very practical area. Three lessons uh, that we need to learn together from this passage. And the first is that hard work is an expression of Christian love. It's our first point, that hard work is an expression of Christian love. Probably the most surprising thing in this passage is the way that Paul deals with this issue by making it a community problem rather than an individual problem. He connects the idleness in the church, uh, the idleness of just a few people, it seems, with the health of the whole congregation. You see it there in verse 6. He begins not by addressing uh, the people who won't work, but he speaks to the Christians who are tolerating it. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. This is a community issue. Something is wrong in the church, and it is affecting the entire body, and that means it is up to the entire body to respond in an appropriate way. We're going to come back to the church's response a little bit later, but for now, we need to understand the way that how we work cannot be disconnected from our lives as Christians. We need to understand that how we work cannot be disconnected from our life in God's church. Our work has community implications. Our work as Christians affects the Christians around us. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of that uh, in our contemporary working world. When we read the New Testament, it seems like the world was a different place back then. It seems like maybe life was a little bit more difficult. It seems like maybe work was a little bit more demanding. It seems like maybe Christians in the pagan world only stayed afloat by banding together helping one another out, but we look at our own world and we seem so fragmented, so independent in our daily lives. It's easy to tell ourselves or convince ourselves or imagine that because of advances in technology, because of different societal structures, because of, of government safety nets, that whether we choose to work or not, or how well we work or how hard we work, is only something that affects us. Then you take it a step further, and we realize that we live in a world uh, that imagines that it has neatly divided what we call the sacred from what we call the secular. Our society loves to separate the church from the state, and sometimes in our minds we can place our worship and our work in two fundamentally different categories. And so we might wonder, well, what practically does it matter, really, to the person sitting behind you in church, whether you teach a class on Thursday, whether you make a sale on Tuesday, whether you design a program, whether you, uh, you, you make a widget, whether you clean your bathrooms, whether you keep your household well, what does it matter, we might say? Well, it matters because hard work is one of the ways that we love people around us. And working to provide for our own needs, that's the rub here, it means that we won't expect others to provide for us. Now there are a whole host of other wonderful spiritual things that we could say about the dignity and the value of work that we don't have time for today. 
We could talk about uh, the fact that God created men and women to be workers when he placed them in the garden, that work came before the fall, that work is not sinful, that work in a sense is to be part of our redeemed creation and part of our redeemed lives as Christians. We could talk about the fact that God himself is a worker. He shows up in the Old Testament as a builder and a gardener uh, and a teacher and a shepherd. Christ comes in, in the New Testament era and he comes as a carpenter. He comes as one who is the master of the banquet, who also stoops low to wash the feet of the people who he's invited. There's dignity, and there's value in work, and there's a whole biblical theology of the value of work that we won't get into today. But you notice that at this point, Paul makes this all intensely practical. He boils it down to what we could call a natural law. It's simply the way things work in the world God has made. Everybody needs to eat, and that means everybody needs to work. That's the principle. And it means it would be a disordered Christianity that expects others to provide for you those things that you refuse to provide for yourself. Take a look in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Why? He says, so that we might not be a burden on any of you. Of course, he could have burdened them. He goes on to point out that he had a right, if he wanted to exercise that right, to burden them. Paul was an apostle. He was a teacher of the gospel appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a shepherd to, to raise up and build up God's kingdom in the world. It's not as if he didn't have a right to be provided for in his labors, but he says he waived that right. He didn't make use of it. And he waived that right out of love for the church. He says that he intentionally did not claim all of the benefits that he could have claimed for himself, and that's what love is. You know that. Love is sacrificial service. Love is laying down the things that we could claim for ourselves in order to give to somebody else that we care for. You see this all the time. Uh, young lovers and their adolescent relationships. And there they are. It's way past bedtime. They're still talking on the phone. They're still texting. They're doing whatever teenagers do for the person that they're infatuated with nowadays. I don't know. Uh, but they're giving up what they ought to have, sleep and rest. Right? They ought to be sleeping. They ought to be doing something else. They probably ought to know better, but they just can't help it. They have to give themselves their time and their attention to the person that they love. Parents do it. A child comes into the world, and part of that loving child is daily sacrificial giving. So, parents of young children, you give up your pastimes and your pleasures. You give up your adult conversations. Right? You give up the things that you want to do, because nap time is coming. And you love that child, and you want to provide for that child. And part of that is giving up your freedom for the good of the child, because you love them. Husbands do it. Husbands who work for decades in the best-paying job that they can find might not be the kind of work that ignites their, uh, their inner passions and desires, but it's the kind of work that can fill a bank account, can provide for a savings account. Why? Because he knows that there's a very good statistical probability that his wife will die before he will. And because he loves his wife, he's providing for her future with his present. 
He's giving, and that's what love is. You see it in your elders and your deacons. They give up time with their families to minister to your families. They, they give of themselves to see that the needs of the church are met. You see it all of the time. Love is sacrificial service. It's giving up what could be yours in order to give what you have to someone else. And the gospel is the greatest example of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we might almost want to say, as Paul could say, that in a sense he didn't have to. If anybody had a right not to give to sinners, it's the God of all righteousness. The one who cannot share space with sin. The one who is the consumer of sin if it comes into his presence. If anybody has a divine right that he could have exercised and say, I'm sorry, you're on your own. I'm not going to do anything for you. It's the Lord of heaven. God conceivably could have claimed the divine right not to send the Son into creation. He could have held back the only service that would turn saints out of sinners. But instead, he gave. God so loved that he gave. And Paul's adding to that understanding here. So it's not that he didn't deserve to be provided for. It's not that he didn't have that right. But the gospel tells us that God so loved that he gave. And Paul's saying, I so loved, so I worked. John Stott, he says, it's an expression of love to support others who are in need. He says, but it's also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. That's what Paul's talking about here. His love for the church was part of his supporting himself. He worked night and day with toil and labor, he says. He did it so that they might not be a burden. He did it so that they would have an example to imitate, and it means that if you are able, you ought to do the same. Christians are called to work. They're called to work hard to provide for themselves through meaningful labor. They're called, as they're able, to meet their own needs so that the church will be free to bear the burdens of those who really need it. It means that when professing Christians refuse to follow the Bible's example, the result is a problem that also affects the church. Because the first lesson we learn in the passage is... That hard work is an expression of Christian love. The second is that idleness corrupts the Christian community. Idleness corrupts the Christian community. Now finally in verse 11, Paul speaks directly to the problem that is plaguing the church. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Three observations about what's happening in the church from that description. The first observation is that this is a lifestyle sin. Paul uses that Jewish turn of phrase uh, to let us know that. He, he says that these people are not just idle sometimes. They're not just loafing a little bit. He says they walk in idleness. In the language of the Bible, how you walk is who you are. 
It's an outward manifestation of your inward person. Think about the way John uses it in his letter. He says, if we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He's not talking about making a mistake. He's not even talking about that ongoing work to mortify the sin that remains in our flesh. He's talking about those who walk in darkness. Those who are mired in it. Those who are given over to it. Those who are identified by it. Those for whom darkness is their natural habitat. Paul says there are some in the church who are walking in idleness. It's not a problem about being temporarily out of work, taking one too many vacation days, right? enjoying video games when you should be doing something else, scrolling through Facebook. Those are instances, but he says there are some who walk in idleness. It's a lifestyle sin. It's a willful rejection of the Christian pattern of hard work. That's the first observation. It's a lifestyle sin. The second observation is that this is more than just laziness. The ESV translates the key language in this passage. It shows up three different times, different forms. Uh, translates the key passage or, or key language as idle or idleness. That gets us about halfway toward what that word actually means. Uh, it really means something more like uh, disorder, a lack of discipline. Originally, it was a military term uh, used to describe those who would break rank, those who were not following orders as they ought to be following orders. You can get a sense for that meaning if you, uh, if you read that contrast in verse 6. And I think the, the New International Version picks it up nicely. It uses two words, idle and disruptive here. The NIV in verse 6, it says, Keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. You have two options here. Your life can be well-ordered by God's word, by the apostolic teaching, or your life can be disordered as you follow your own sinful desires. It's clear from the context that there is a particular disorder here, and the particular disorder is this willful idleness. But as usual, our sins have roots that go far beneath what we can see on the surface. So some scholars make suggestions as to what the roots are here uh, behind this problem of a, a disordered idleness. Some of them say it's a, it's a lack of understanding or a misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ. That was the other main topic that, uh, that took up Paul's attention in 2 Thessalonians. And so the theory goes that maybe there are some who believe that Jesus' second coming is so close it's not even worth working anymore. Maybe others think that Jesus has come back, and he's come back spiritually already, and so that means that the life of the body isn't something to care about. You can just be a spiritual person. Others say, well, well maybe the Thessalonians are just too influenced by their culture. In the Greek-speaking world in this time, manual labor was something looked down upon. It was something fit only for slaves. So maybe the Thessalonians also thought as members of God's kingdom, that they should be exempt from the disgrace of hard work. Another commentator said, maybe some of them pressed the social implications of the gospel of the kingdom too far. So far that they expected the rich to provide for the poor, no questions asked. At the end of the day, we don't really know the motivation, but Paul calls it disordered. It is a rejection of God's way, a rejection of his decrees. It is a budding sin with very deep roots. Third observation about this sin. 
verse 11, that, that this has begun disturbing the peace of God's people. You notice he says there, they're walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You know the old saying, right? That idle hands are the devil's workshop. I learned the same wisdom growing up in a household uh, as one of two brothers. That's because every time uh, my brother and, and I began to get on one another's nerves, my mother would very helpfully offer to find us something productive to do instead. And so we learned, right? If we're busy, that must mean that we'll stay out of trouble. It seems that in Thessalonica, those who had nothing productive to do, as often happens, found a way to stick their noses into other people's affairs. A busybody, of course, is a troublemaker. We might call them a pot stirrer. We might call them a gossip. We might call them a meddler. It might just be somebody who makes unhelpful contributions to everybody else's life because they think they're entitled to speak in such a way. Gordon Fee says that it's not merely idleness that concerns Paul here, but it's the unruly way that they are disrupting the shalom, the peace of the entire community. I think this is the point at which we realize just how unchristian this kind of living is. I suggested earlier that, that believers are supposed to work hard and that that hard work is an expression of Christian love. I suggested that, that we lay down our demands and our rights. Uh, we show that we're willing to put the needs of others before our own in the church. It's really a way of living like you don't think you're the most important person in the room. It's a way of serving without seeking to be recognized or noticed. It's another way of fulfilling and living out that pattern of Christ-like humility that we find in Philippians chapter 2. Remember what Paul said there. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you know the rest of the passage. You know this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus because he didn't come to serve. I'm sorry, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to do the hard work. He came to lay down his rights and his position. He came to take on the form of a servant, to give himself for the sake of others. He did nothing out of selfishness, nothing out of ambition, nothing out of conceit, nothing out of self-importance. He humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave. But the disordered idler that Paul is talking about here turns that on its head. The idler doesn't love others so much. The idler loves himself. And so the idler loves himself so much that he takes. He's so infatuated with his own contributions that he inserts himself into everybody else's business. She's so engrossed with her own importance, she imagines that everybody else ought to be too. And so the one who is not busy inevitably becomes a busy body. They do it because they believe that they're the special case. They're the one who deserves to be provided for. They are the one to whom others ought to serve. Their contributions of wisdom are the gifts that the church cannot do without. 
So we might summarize Paul and say here that the hands that do the least often clap the loudest for themselves. They do it because they love the attention. They love the praise and they think that that's what they deserve. Now the answer for a sinner like that actually is the same as the answer for a sinner like you. The same as the answer for a sinner like me. It's to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to remember his finished work on our behalf. So you notice how Paul softens his language as he comes into verse 12. There he speaks directly to the idlers, uh, and he repeats this language of command, but now he also adds uh, the note of encouragement. Do you see that? Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, he's trying to build them up, not tear them down. He's trying to remind them to to let their hearts take courage for the work they've been called to by remembering the fullness they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling them, go back and ponder how it is that you've been saved. Go back and remember his death and his resurrection and how they provided for the needs of your soul, how he's filled you with a fullness that doesn't need to seek self-importance. And in that fullness, I think he's saying, get to work. Not just spiritual work, perhaps. Not just churchly work. Not just shepherding work or or faithful work. Also the kind of work that we would put in that secular bucket. Just good, old, hard-fashioned, old-fashioned hard labor. Whatever your hand finds to do. However the Lord has gifted you, wherever he's called you to provide for yourself, for the needs of your family, have something uh, to do and get to work doing it, he's telling us. Get to work in the encouragement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're learning here that idleness corrupts the Christian community. We've already seen that hard work is an expression of Christian love, And that means that finally, the last lesson to learn is that the church must do the hard work of pursuing those who are unrepentant. The church must do the hard work of pursuing those who are unrepentant. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement over what Paul is trying to do in verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That same line shows up in in Galatians, and so some commentators think it's just kind of a, a general encouragement for the church. Others think that it has something to do with uh, the fact that they may now be jaded in giving charitably to others in need. You know, they, you have these loafers on the edge of the Christian community always sponging off the good work of those who are working hard, and that can make you hardened to those who are actually in need. And so others say, well, maybe Paul's trying to build them up and say, no, 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 don't, don't stop giving to everybody. Even if you have to stop giving to them, don't grow weary in doing good. I think it's more likely that Paul wants the church not to grow weary in the good work of pursuing these busybodies into repentance. My evidence uh, for that comes in the first letter. Uh, Turn back with me in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, toward the end of the letter, Paul writes some general instructions there for the whole church. Chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, Excuse me, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14, he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, there's our word again, idle, or as the, the footnote tells us, disorderly or disciplined. He's talking about the same group of people that he's still dealing with in the second letter. In fact, the other word shows up there again. He tells them that what they ought to do for these idols is to admonish them. That shows up in our passage, but it shows up as the word warn. Don't treat them like an enemy, but warn them like a brother. Admonish them like a brother. Deal faithfully with them. And by the way, while you're doing this, be patient with them all. Continue to bear with them as you continue to pursue them. The church is still dealing, you see, with the same issues. They're still full of the same kind of sinners. And if you've been around the church very long, you know that's how churches go. If you've ever had to pursue someone who is caught in sin, maybe not in the church, maybe in your family. You've ever had to pursue someone who is caught in sin, and yet they refuse to acknowledge the sin that they've been caught in. You know how that can cause you to want to lose your patience. It can bring you to an end of your patience with that person. want to make you just walk away and say, forget it. I, I, I can't do anything here. I think the church is beginning to feel faint-hearted themselves. They're beginning to recognize their weakness. They're beginning to see the way that by their own efforts, they can't push the grace of repentance into other human beings. Thankfully, Paul is patient with the church. And so he's encouraging them. He's encouraging the faint-hearted. He's helping the weak. He's helping them to admonish the idle. And he's saying, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. He's reminding them that even the idle, even the disorderly are worth pursuing. Even the undisciplined in the church are not too far gone if the Lord is at work. So back in our passage, you, you notice that right after his encouragement to the faithful in verse 13, he reaffirms the need for loving church discipline. Verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. It's basically a repetition of what he said in verse 6, right? Keep away from any brother who's not walking, uh, or who is walking in idleness, excuse me. Now here's the point, I think we need to just get it over with and admit that this does not sit easily with our modern sensibilities. This isn't the sort of thing that we read and go, oh, that's great that the church can do that. I hope to be a part of that someday, right? Again, John Stott, he asked the question, he says, how should the local Christian community handle a situation in which one or more of its members are guilty of serious misbehavior? And he gives this answer. He says, to be sure, many churches nowadays would do nothing. He says, the administration of church discipline has fallen into disuse, and the thought of reviving it is viewed with distaste. I think in the 30 years since he wrote those words, not much has gotten any better. You have, on the one hand, uh, the society all around the church trying to convince us that the very idea of shame is itself the unforgivable sin. It's not yet a virtue in our culture to be shameless, but it is seen as a good thing to be unshameable. Right? To be living so far outside of anyone else's moral authority that, that the idea of shame is laughable. And then, on the other hand, 
we see legitimate misuses of the kind of thing that Paul is telling the church to do. Right? We see so-called Christian communities where people who are seen to be wrong are, are shunned. They're cut off completely. They're spiritually and economically and socially erased. They're very often disowned by their families. And when we see those things, there are words that come to our minds. Words like cult. Words like spiritual abuse. And so maybe because there's, there's this pressure on the one side and there are these abuses on the other, even many Reformed churches are hesitant to take the step of removing church fellowship from those who are walking in unrepentance. So let's admit that this doesn't sit well with our sensibilities, but let's also admit that this is exactly what Paul is telling the church it must do in some cases. This is a command. He's telling us that it is the church's responsibility to pursue unrepentant members with the love of church discipline. He's telling us that professing Christians who are engaged in these public, willful, lifestyle patterns of sin should be made to feel just how shameful their behavior is to the wider Christian community. In some cases, they might need drastic measures to wake them up to the damage that their sin is doing. And so he gives them drastic measures. He says, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, he says. Keep away from them. Why? That they might be ashamed. We can't possibly iron out all of the details here as to what this ought to look like when, regrettably, it has to happen in the church. But I want to say two things uh, about church discipline done well. The first is that church discipline ought to be handled by godly church leaders. Right? What Paul is talking about here, uh, it involves the whole church, but he's not talking about mob rule. He's, talking about, he's not talking about one person being hurt, uh, and then playing favorites or the church dividing into factions. Are you for this person or against that person? When it has to happen, church discipline is something that needs to be handled with care. It needs to be handled with integrity. It works best when there are systems of oversight and accountability where facts can be heard, where appeals can be made. It works best when it's handled by the elders in a church. It works best when those elders are themselves uh, subject to other elders who are leading them. It's one of the reasons that we believe very strongly in the Presbyterian form of church government. It's a biblical system where each church has a local authority, and yet no church is left to its own devices. That's the first statement we need to make about, about church uh, discipline, is that it ought to be handled by godly leaders. The second is that church discipline ought to be aimed at loving restoration. It is clear that what Paul has in mind here is not what we sometimes think of as shunning. You notice, obviously, he says, have nothing to do with the disorderly, but he also tells them to warn them like brothers. He's not talking about complete erasure of the person. He's, talk he's not talking about complete removal of any social contact. Quite possibly, he has in mind, removing them from the sacred fellowship that the church shares at the Lord's table. 
almost certainly he has in mind, cutting off all of the sort of normal, intimate, personal friendship that you have with the person, the kind of interactions that, that sort of convey just by the interaction, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing that needs to be corrected. Everything is fine and copacetic. John Calvin, uh, I think, wisely points out that there is a difference, he says, between excommunication and anathema. There is a difference between discipline and a curse. The difference is that one of these is an act of love and the other is an act of condemnation. Well, for Paul, just as for Jesus before him, church discipline is always aimed at love. It's always for the purpose of restoration. It's meant to be a process of pointing out sin, but it's meant to be a process of pointing out sin so that it can be repented of. It's meant to lead to repentance of sin so that sin can be forgiven. It's aimed at the forgiveness of sin so that the church can grow in thankfulness to the Lord. That's what Paul is aiming for. That's why he wrote this letter in the first place. He's hearing reports, perhaps. There's false teaching and false living going on in Thessalonica. And do you think Paul would say, I'm done with those people. I've had it. Up to here, because I keep writing to them, and nothing changes, it seems. I don't know. He, he's pursuing them. He's instructing them. He's shepherding them. He has hard words for them, and he's telling them to deal with sin in their midst very seriously, but he's doing it because the church needs to be loved and led. That's why he's writing this letter in the first place so that even hard-hearted sinners would come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that Paul gave us this letter to give us an example of what it means to pursue those that are caught in sin. An example of what it looks like to be patient enough to bear their burdens just like other people have had to bear yours from time or two. It's true that life in the church can be challenging. It's true that church discipline can be difficult. It can be painful, and it can be slow, and it can be awfully hard work. But God so loved the world that he gave. And if we believe that that's true, that we ought to love the church so much that we're willing to work. Our hard work is meant to be an expression of our Christian love. And when idleness corrupts the order of the Christian community, we ought to do the loving hard work of pursuing the unrepentant with the grace of God. That's what Paul's telling us here in this passage. It's what I hope we learn together in this letter. Let's pray together. Well, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you were patient with us and you continue to be patient with us. We thank you that in our sin you did not write us off, but you sent your Son to gather us to yourself and to provide for us a life and an inheritance and a forgiveness that could never be ours by our own working. We thank you for the grace of giving us a Savior and drawing us to yourself. Help us, O oh Lord, to be people who point one another in that same direction. We're willing to come alongside our brothers and sisters caught in sin, knowing that we would need them to come alongside us as well. Help us to be faithful in doing that. Help us also to be gracious 
and to trust in you and your leadership and to do the hard work you call us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.